When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus' saying here in Matthew becomes even more meaningful when we realize that there's no visible harassment taking place in front of his eyes when he says this, right? Um, There's no one that was reported as sort of like harassing that crowd or something. So the question that the text presents is, what is the harassment that Jesus is talking about? The answer, I believe, from the context of this passage is demonic harassment. Immediately preceding this passage, we've seen Jesus uh, cast out a demon that had kept a man mute, for, unable to speak. And then the Pharisees, you'll, you'll recall the passage, the Pharisees say, oh, by demons he casts out demons, right? And then immediately, and then in the midst of this passage, Jesus says this saying about the sheep, and then he appoints the twelve, and what does the first thing he tells the twelve to do? Or rather, his commissioning of them, he says, I give you authority over unclean spirits. And so this passage is set in a context of demonic harassment. Um, now, we don't usually think about that way, uh, the, the world being that way in the 21st century so readily, but I believe it is the cosmos that we live in, as it says in the New Testament elsewhere, um, our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Not against people, but against powers and principalities of this dark world, right? Um, the, it's a, about the enemy. Um, a little bit of historical context then can help us see in what way the crowd was being harassed. We know individuals were being harassed by demons through sickness, right? But how is the crowd being harassed? We see two things um, at present with historical study, with two things present with, um, in the life of the crowd two harassments. The harassment of false teaching um, and oppressive government institutions. In the face of both of these harassments, Jesus says a shepherd is needed. So first, let's look at false teaching. Um, Have you ever thought that the crowd that ran out to follow Jesus, this is not the first time they've left the food on the stove and run out of their house to go listen to someone who's claiming to be be the Messiah? Um, We know from the book of Acts um, and from Josephus, first century historian, Um, There were multiple people who claimed to be the Messiah in the decades leading up to Jesus' coming. And we know that crowds followed them. In fact, part of the deliberation of the Jews who didn't believe Jesus in the book of Acts. You'll remember, I I forget the chapter, but um, one of the Jewish leaders says, um, maybe this will just die out when the Romans put it down, just like those other messianic pretenders, right? Now, of course, Jesus is the real Messiah, but the crowd that runs out from the kitchen, they don't know that yet. They haven't heard Jesus' teaching. They haven't seen him die on the cross and fulfill all the prophecies in the Old Testament. They're just, they've heard there's a Messiah and, and they run out. So Jesus sees these crowds coming at him um, and uh, he recognizes that they don't know what they're coming out for yet. In fact, most of them, many of them, I shouldn't say, yeah, most of them um, actually have a false idea of what the Messiah should be, right? That's why we see at multiple junctures in the gospel that portions of the crowd leave Jesus because he disappointed their messianic expectations. Most of them were hoping that they'd have someone who would lead a political coup against the Roman overlords. And Jesus didn't do that. So they were disappointed. And he offered teaching that was hard to swallow. Jesus sees the crowd chasing the right thing, right, himself. He is the real Messiah. But for the wrong reasons and with confusion in their hearts, they've been harassed both by false teaching and the absence of good teaching. Those who should have been their teachers, the Pharisees, as Jesus says, who sat in the, in the seat of Moses, had failed to rightly instruct them 
on this front because they'd been overly concerned with just religious external particulars. Jesus sees the desperate longings in the hearts of the crowd that's coming to him, and he has compassion for them. I think this index is onto um, a present-day reality, sort of a big category, but the reality of those who look to civil government to be the Messiah. I think that's our false messianic expectation um, in this day. And it wears two faces, I think. The first is those who think that if we just tweak the government enough, if we just have enough laws, enough adjusted adjustments of the programs, well, then we'll create this utopia. And the government will have saved us, right? See how that's political talking, but there's a messianic expectation there that, you know, Jesus says that his language is about the kingdom of God. That's paradise. That's utopia. If we look for anything other than Jesus himself, we're looking for the wrong Messiah. The other face of those who look to civil government to be the Messiah is those who think that if the government just weighed in with a heavier hand of enforcement, then all the waters would be made calm, life would be nice, and in fact, perfect, and the government would have saved us. Right? See, that's also kind of to put messianic expectation on the government. Against both of these faces of false messianism, uh, crowds today need a shepherd someone to point them to the true Messiah and the only utopia on earth, which is the kingdom of God. Right? The, the blessing at the end of the Eucharist is the sort of constitutional charter of the kingdom of God, that there's a peace which passes all understanding, that there is a life that is peaceful and joyful in the midst of whatever tumult in Christ Jesus, in his kingdom. And in fact, the Lord has still appointed persons, just like he appointed the apostles. Right? He says, Man, there needs to be some labor. Well, he kind of used two metaphors, right? Shepherds and laborers. It's like, there needs to be these. And then he immediately appoints them, the 12. And he still appoints ministers um, to proclaim his gospel, to point to Jesus as the Messiah, the, re- the only true Messiah, and his kingdom as utopia. This isn't to the exclusion of engaging with the real things of this world, as we'll see in just a second. But I think it's so important that we never substitute the gospel of Jesus with any demon-inspired false teaching of a secular Messiah. Let me say that again. It's so important as Christians that we don't ever substitute the gospel of Jesus with a demon-inspired false teaching of a secular Messiah, of any political party. The reason that the crowds in Jesus' day felt the longing for a Messiah, right? Like, why would they not just stay in the house? Why, why did they run out and, and go to follow this person they'd heard was the Messiah? Was, um, we see plainly from an analysis of like their setting in the first century after the return from exile and the, uh, Alexander the Great's conquest of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Roman Empire and the administrative structures that they had in Judea, that the Roman government was an oppressive government to them. And the Jews regularly complained in a lot of documentary evidence, including in the New Testament, that the Romans exacted harsh taxes, that they were sadistic in their punishment of criminals. Like the cross is a familiar image to us. This is a horrifying way to punish a criminal. And anyone who really pushed against the goads got this as his punishment. Jesus was not the only one to die on a cross. There were tens of thousands who were crucified in the decades around Jesus' life. 
the Romans asserted a cultural superiority and frequently demeaned the Jewish people and their integrity and their values. In the midst of Jewish festivals, Romans would deliberately hold counter-pageantry to interrupt them and kind of rub it in their nose, like, nice try, you thought this was your moment of celebration, but we're going to upend it and cause trouble to it. All of these Roman things were enforced through a very heavily militarized state bureaucracy. The crowd of Jews in Jesus' time were desperate to be in control of their own destiny, like they'd been in the time of King David. That was their golden age, a thousand years before Jesus, when they had a godly king and were a sovereign, powerful nation. Like That was their golden age, and they were hoping the Messiah would restore that because they were weary of frequent harassments. Right? That's what Jesus says, harassed and helpless. The word helpless is the image of um, a sheep that's lying down, that's just sort of like just laying there for the slaughter um, in Greek. Harassment from the government that they paid taxes to. And what we see in the book of Revelation, that right there in the Bible, in the form of apocalyptic images, is that one of the things the enemy, the spiritual enemy does, is collude with large political powers to put down God's people. We've seen that at so many junctures in world history, and it will become increasingly so in the end times. And boy, did first century Jews feel that pain. When they, read the, when they read the book of Revelation, they were like, oh, yes. It's like this demonic beast with heads that's like coming at us. They recognized that imagery intuitively. Jesus saw the oppression that they lived under, and he had compassion for them. Now, he didn't overthrow Rome, right? But he had compassion for them. And he appointed 12 to be under shepherds to care for him, to care for them, the crowds. And, of course, I think here we have an analogy to our own day as well. Not a direct comparison, but an analogy. That there's a crowd on the streets of this nation's cities that Jesus has compassion on. From his throne in heaven, he has compassion. Sinners as they are, as we all are, he has compassion. And he's appointed his church to exercise his own shepherding care for the relief of the crowds. The church should be the one place where harassed sheep can feel, sh- can feel safe. Right? Whatever the harassment, the church should be the place where you can be safe from that harassment. And the pastors, that's just the Latin word for shepherd of the church, should never be so wrapped up in religious externals. This is the key fault of the Pharisees, right? That they fail to do what they can to provide for and defend the fold of God. Those are the two tasks of a shepherd, provide and defend. Only the church, and here I mean not just clergy, but clergy and people together, the church can point people to the only truly green pasture that exists, the one we pray for in Psalm 23, right? The Lord leads me beside still waters and quiet pastures. Only the church can point to a life lived in the living God, nourished by the resurrected body of Jesus himself. And in leading the world to green pasture, also defending against the wolves who would attack. Wolves of false teaching, wolves of oppression. That's the role of the shepherd. And there's really this sort of analogy between the way a pastor should be to a congregation is the same way the congregation should be to the world, right? Welcoming in the sheep and defending them as best we can. All of this work is for the glory of the one good shepherd, right? That's who we're named after is Jesus. The good shepherd is Jesus. When we live out this mission of shepherding according to our station, 
we are not only following Jesus, but enacting his own ministry and giving glory to him. When we oppose the wolves of false teaching and the wolves of oppression and point people to the only true pasture. Amen.